Welcome to the MacArthur Memorial Podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Williams. Join me as we explore the life and legacy of General of the Army Douglas MacArthur and discuss a wide range of military history topics from the American Civil War to the Korean War. Welcome, everybody, and welcome to our live stream today. My name is Amanda Williams, and joining me is Jim Zobel, the world's expert on General Douglas MacArthur. Now, today we're going to be talking about the court-martial of Billy Mitchell. Now, in 1925, the court-martial of Billy Mitchell captured national attention, and at the center of the controversy was Billy Mitchell, a man today who's regarded as the father of the United States Air Force. Now, we're not really going to get into the reasons for the trial. We have a podcast in the MacArthur podcast series about that already. But in a nutshell, in September 1925, a then-Brigadier Billy Mitchell. He blames a crash of a Navy blimp on the negligence of Navy leaders. And then he blasts the Army for being similarly ignorant of the potential of air power. Now, for years, he'd been very, very critical of the military's failure to adapt to air power. And this is a bit of a last straw. And he's summoned to Washington, D.C. to stand trial. There's about eight charges, including conduct prejudicial to good order and military discipline and then conduct of a nature to bring discredit upon military service. He and his legal counsel turned the trial into a platform to explain his vision, which I think we all agree today was a correct vision of air power. But the trial wasn't about the validity of his vision. It was about his behavior. And the trial ends on December 17th, 1925, and he is convicted. And then Major General Douglas MacArthur he was on the the trial. He later describes the order to sit on that court-martial as one of the most distasteful orders that he ever received. He's one of the youngest judges on that court, and he's also a longtime friend of Mitchell. He's also a very ambitious officer on track, possibly in the future, to become the future chief of staff of the U.S. Army. So what we're going to talk about today is MacArthur's role on that court-martial and how he navigated the politics of the trial, and whether or not he voted to convict Mitchell. So that was a whole lot. Jim, MacArthur is the youngest judge on that court-martial. Give us a sense of where he is in his life and career at that point, and then tell us about the composition of the other judges. First off, I'm not an expert on anything. As you know, I've just been here for a million years. And so I know a lot more than anybody else. But as far as that goes, yeah, MacArthur is right then. He's a third corps commander. They had just gotten back from the Philippines. He and his wife, Louise, uh, had been there from 22 till about late 1924. And they came back and were immediately sent to the uh, fourth corps command, which was down in Atlanta, but they were only there for a couple of months. And then they come back to Baltimore and that's where third corps is headquartered. And they're going to live at the Rainbow Hill, one of those uh, Trumbull estates that were built for the Stotesberries, which looks very much like the Argonne in France, uh, if you ever go there. But that's where MacArthur is and that's where he's living. And all of a sudden he finds out as soon as he gets to Baltimore that that's one of the first things he's going to be doing is sitting on this trial, which he calls what the most distasteful order I've ever received. It's like 11 judges. I think there's like six major generals and five brigadier generals. But it's all these people who have no experience flying airplanes. 
so to speak, you know, but it's not, the trial isn't about that. You know, it's about conduct on becoming an officer. And uh, as Hap Arnold would say, everybody in the trial knew that except Billy Mitchell. And so these guys are older officers. I think, you know, Howes, who, uh, Robert Howes, he's, he's, you know, graduated in like 1888. I think he fought in the Indian Wars or something like that, you know, before when he first started out. Most of these guys were in World War I. William Graves had served uh, under Arthur MacArthur in the Philippines. He's the guy that's going to go to uh, Siberia, you know, at the end of World War I. So he's going to be on there. Summerall, uh, who's destined to be the chief of staff, he's the president of it at first. He hates Billy Mitchell because Mitchell had come through Hawaii in 24 and basically said that uh, you're going to get bombed to oblivion. You have no defenses whatsoever. And, you know, ticked off Summerall. Summerall had been um, MacArthur's Corps commander in World War One. So, I mean, he's invested with all these people. Robert McCoy is a he's a I think the closest in age to to MacArthur, but he graduated in like 1897. So he's like six years older. He had been the regimental commander in the Rainbow Division of the of the New York regiment there. I mean, so all these guys know each other. MacArthur knows them all, but they're just a lot older. I think, you know, two of the guys graduated in the 1880s and and the rest of them are, you know, from the 1890s. Bernard Irwin, I think, was like an 89. House was like 88. And, you know, the rest of these guys are like, uh, you know, 18, 1890. But, you know, a lot of them have a, a lot of infantry experience, cavalry experience. And, uh, you know, most of them had been in World War One as well and saw that it was infantry that won the war. You know, and so they not only look at Billy Mitchell as being vociferous in his uh, vocal abilities, but they also see him as being wrong you know, about air power because they, they didn't see that in World War One, and they don't, they don't really see the, the future as, as Billy Mitchell does. Then Representative Fiorello LaGuardia of New York gives testimony at the trial, and he's a very interesting figure. He had complained very, very publicly that he believed that Mitchell would not get a fair trial because the judges were part of the establishment that Mitchell was challenging, or as you've kind of already touched on, they didn't agree with him at all in terms of his vision. But LaGuardia has something very interesting to say about MacArthur, though. Can you tell us about his testimony? Yeah, that's when he's on the on the stand. You know, the, the thing was is from what everybody says, you know, but Washington was a very dull town. There was nothing to do um there. And so this trial becomes like the you know, the happening, the the place you want to be, the place you want to be seen. And a lot of the reporters, you know, talk about this because, you know, Mitchell turns it into a he turns it into an expose on why we need air power rather than defending himself against these these charges. And so it becomes kind of like a every time anybody says something, the whole court like explodes in laughter. And the the one reporter was saying, I'm 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 thinking that foot stamping is coming next where everybody's used to be he and hawing and stamping their feet and laughing uproariously at, at all these things. So LaGuardia gets up there and, you know, he's a character. He had flown with Mitchell in World War One, And yeah, he says the this board is, is not going to do anything that's not conducive to what the, the general staff wants. And he says, of course, I said that before I knew that Douglas MacArthur was going to be on the board. So everybody knows already that MacArthur is not this guy that goes along with the thinking of the general staff. They know that he's been very vocal in his own career the whole time. And even Burke Davis will say that. He's the guy who has, you know, he gets all the official transcripts and he writes the book about it. (laughs) 
He writes in there, you know, MacArthur was uncharacteristically silent for the entire trial. And so all these people know he's a talker. They know he's, you know, somebody who does who always goes against the grain. And it's just they're all pretty much remarkable about why MacArthur is kind of not saying anything, you know, the, the whole trial. But yeah, when LaGuardia said that, they said it took like about three or four minutes to, to calm the courtroom down. MacArthur's just sitting there like, what, what? <laughs> so Mitchell tells his counsel at one point that MacArthur looks like he's been drawn through a knot hole. <laughs> so I think, I mean, even though there's these kind of funny moments, it's obviously a very stressful experience for MacArthur as well. And we mentioned earlier that he was an officer that a lot of people said, you know, there's a bright future in front of this guy. A lot of the judges, as you mentioned, had been criticized by LaGuardia and other people because obviously they didn't agree with Mitchell. And they had been even in some cases personally criticized by Mitchell. Or some of these judges were just straight up Pershing men. And Pershing himself was not a fan of Mitchell. And then, of course, a lot of these guys on the the panel can exert a lot of influence over MacArthur's future career. If they don't like Mitchell, and if it seems that the verdict is already set in everybody's minds, how did MacArthur navigate this situation, you know, with a verdict, which is pretty much a foregone conclusion? He calls Billy Mitchell his closest and most intimate friend. For MacArthur, who through his life doesn't really seem to have a lot of close friends, that's saying something. And they do. They, you know, their their families are totally intermingled. His grandfather was best friends with Mitchell's father or grandfather, Alexander Mitchell, one of the richest people in you know Milwaukee ever. And then his father, Arthur MacArthur, is best friends with Mitchell's dad, John Lendrum. Mitchell, they both served in the 24th Wisconsin. These people grow up together. Supposedly, MacArthur dated both Janet and Harriet, um, you know, Mitchell's sisters. This is something that is agonizing to him because, like you said, he's up, you know, in line for chief of staff. You know, I mean, everybody knows how smart he is. Everybody is totally behind. You know, Summerall is is a great admirer of of MacArthur. Menaher, who was the chair, you know, the chief of the air service that that, you know, fought with Mitchell so much. He was MacArthur's division commander in World War One. You've got Pershing, you know, who's very much antagonistic to Mitchell. All these people are instrumental as to, you know, where MacArthur's going. And so that I think is, is the reason why he's silent. You know, the reason why he doesn't say anything the entire, you know, trial. And there, there's a letter that comes to MacArthur in, in the 1960s. And it's from this friend of uh, uh, Mitchell's and who was there with him, with Mitchell at the entire trial. And he said he remembered every morning MacArthur and Mitchell, hey, how's it going? You know, they're shaking hands. All the other judges are like, what's going on with this? And then the guy even says, you know, we went out to lunch, you know, during the trial, after the trial, MacArthur and Mitchell, you know, go out to lunch. So I imagine it's 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 very unnerving for MacArthur, you know, knowing that he's got this career that he's working on and then knowing, you know, that. And then MacArthur will even say that, you know, the, the thing wasn't so much what he had done, but it was the violence of his language, you know, because he was he was he was just calling them all idiots, incompetent, a criminal, you know, negligence, things like that. And so, I, you know, I, I think that's why why MacArthur has that whole look the whole time and everybody notices it. And uh, uh, like you said, I think he's he's worried about betraying his best friend as well as furthering his own career. It's a very complicated situation for him. 
shifting gears a little bit, obviously the trial attracted a ton of media attention and it also attracted a lot of socialites. Um, MacArthur's wife at the time, Louise Cromwell Brooks, is a prominent attendee. And there are reports that he is so distracted by her that he can't really concentrate on the trial. Now, we've just talked about how, how pained he is by the whole process. Is it true that he's very distracted by his wife as well during the trial? Well, I don't know. They've been married three years and their marriage is going to end in a couple of years. We know all the troubles they had in the Philippines, a lot of fights <laughs> between the two. So how much of that is, is real? I don't know. The thing is, is that Louise is very good friends with Mitchell's second wife, Elizabeth Trumbull. When Mitchell was on that tour of the Pacific, it was also his honeymoon. And he took Elizabeth you know, with him when they go to Hawaii. And then they went to the Philippines. And they said when the ship came through the San Bernardino Straits, MacArthur had a plane because MacArthur's the head of the Philippine department at that time. And he had a plane fly over the ship with a big banner that said, welcome, Mr. and Mrs. Mitchell. And so they come and stay with them in Manila. And Louise becomes very good friends with Elizabeth. And it's said that they show up at the courtroom arm in arm every day, yeah. you know? <laughs> and so, yeah, it's this big, and sh the only reason Louise wants to be there is because like you said, that's the place to be seen, you know, in Washington. And they say that there's a lot of girls that are showing up to this trial because they know all these young available army officers are all there. And uh, it's a place to be seen and, and, you know, be noticed. But as well, you've got this family dynamic that's going on with Louise and Elizabeth. But as well, Billy Mitchell's first wife is there at the trial every day with her father and Harriet Mitchell. You know, so this is a really weird scene to have the first wife with her dad. And it seems like they're sitting right behind Billy Mitchell as well. And here's the thing. MacArthur at one time in his life was in love with Harriet. So, I mean, what's right. he thinking this whole time? There's Harriet. There's my wife. You know, I better look at my wife the whole time so she doesn't see me maybe stealing a glance at Harriet. What's oh goodness. <laughs> so how how much does that have to do with it? Right. It's such an interesting trial from I mean, we're talking about the personality side and obviously from the actually what was going on there, the more serious side, but I I didn't know yeah, some man. of this stuff about the the personalities that were there. That's really really cool, Jim. So December 17th, 1925, Mitchell is found guilty. Do we know how MacArthur voted? He says a lot of different things uh, over the years. People would write him and uh, they would get a response saying, as a member of that court, I'm sworn to secrecy. I'm not allowed to say anything about how I voted in that trial. It came out shortly after the trial, the story about the newsman sweeping the trash can and they find all the different votes and they compare them and they say that MacArthur voted for acquittal. Fiorella uh, LaGuardia was big at spreading that story. In 1945, uh, Alexander Wiley, who was a senator, was trying to get a posthumous Medal of Honor for Mitchell. And he wrote to MacArthur saying, you know, I, I've always felt that you voted for acquittal. 
you know, in this, in this case, you know, and, and that you were good friends with Billy Mitchell and, you know, will you support this um, endeavor that I'm trying to do to get the Medal of Honor? And MacArthur wrote him back that you have remembered the trial as it was. And that he says, what you have stated is the truth. Billy Mitchell knew that I did that and would, you know, say to me many times, you know, after that, how much he thanked me for that. Billy Mitchell would say the same thing to George Kinney as well. When Kinney was uh, MacArthur's air chief, he told him that, you know, because Kinney was a big uh, Mitchell, you know, protege, as a lot of these guys were. And he said that uh, he met with Mitchell at Middleburg, that plantation that he lived at for the, you know, the end of his years. And Mitchell told him that I really, uh, you know, dug a, a big, a big thank you for what he did there back in 25. But the thing is, is, uh, does he really vote for acquittal? You know, I think, you know, in his in his memoirs, MacArthur says, I did my best to save him from disgrace. And Mitchell wasn't drummed out of the service. He was given a suspension and a suspension of of money. And MacArthur will never say, you know, yes, I voted for acquittal, except to Wiley, you know, that senator, because other people will write him and ask him and, and he'll say, check out the Lee and Henschel book that just came out, you know, and there in the book, both of Mitchell's sisters told Henschel, no, we didn't believe MacArthur voted to convict. We believed that he voted for acquittal. And so they'll say, you know, look to this book and then uh, they'll they'll write him again and he'll say, I did my best to you know, save him from disgrace, never saying I voted for acquittal. And then Red Blake writes him in 1960, the Army football coach, who MacArthur is very good friends with. And Red Blake says, you know, this topic has come up again. You know, did you vote for acquittal? And MacArthur doesn't answer it. You know, does he tell him vocally something? We don't know, but there's no answer. And MacArthur would usually answer those things. And so it comes down to uh, we don't really know. You know, I mean, there's there's that point where he said he did. But we also know, like you were saying before, is it does he have to go along to ensure that he'll be chief of staff? He'll admit that that one time that he that's what happened to Senator Wiley. But with other people, he won't. He doesn't say that. He just says, you know, I did my best to help him. He was my best friend. You're correct. Even Janet Mitchell's son, this guy, Mackey, writes to MacArthur and says, uh, you know, my my mom always thought that you voted for acquittal. And MacArthur writes back and says, your mom recollects everything right. I did my best to save him from disgrace. He doesn't say, you know, I voted for acquittal. He, he says that I, I did my best to save him from disgrace. And so I, I look at kind of maybe that that's what it was. He was the guy that kept them from drumming out of the service. But, you know, did he vote for acquittal? I don't know. You know, I don't know. And no one does. It is true, though, that in terms of the penalty, I mean, Mitchell gets off much easier than he could have. Mm. So, I mean, I suppose it is possible MacArthur played a role there, but obviously there are other people later on that, that do some stuff as well. So after the trial, Mitchell's counsel tells the press, Billy Mitchell is the John Brown of 1925. They think they have silenced him, but his ideas will go marching on, and those who have crucified him will be the first to put his aviation suggestions into use. That's a big statement. In World War II, does MacArthur ever look back to the trial? Does he ever say anything again about Mitchell's ideas in terms of how they relate to the the war? George Kinney, in his book, he says that, yeah, MacArthur admits that he did a lot of bad, wrong things. You know, when he was chief of staff, he should have you know, voted differently on on air power um, because he comes becomes a total air power advocate. And as well, during the, 
the 1930s, it's MacArthur that is like, yes, let's build the B-17. This is a, a ship that is a long range bomber like Mitchell had envisioned. But yet MacArthur cuts out a lot of other air programs as well. And I think Jeffrey Perret or, you know, D. Clayton James, one of them said, no wonder, you know, that Mitchell probably had a hard time deciphering how MacArthur was thinking the whole time during the trial because MacArthur has, you know, various opposing uh, ideas about air power as well. We know that Jean, you know, in her oral history said that when the Bismarck Sea battle happens in, in March of 1943 and air power wipes out that Japanese convoy that pretty much changes the entire ground war in the beginning, that uh, Jean said that the whole time MacArthur was walking around the apartment, you know, just all of a sudden being like Billy Mitchell, you know, because everything, you know, in, in MacArthur's mind, Mitchell had been proven correct, you know, by this by this action at the Bismarck Sea. You know, Mitchell never envisions aircraft carriers. He, he doesn't he's not a guy for aircraft carriers. He says, you know, that you you'll have them, you know, you can maybe build some land masks, you know, like the Chinese are doing and building these air bases on coral reefs, things like that. Um, and that's that's the way Mitchell pretty much envisioned it. He did. I don't think he really saw these uh, floating platforms. I think MacArthur, he's not really a, an advocate of Mitchell until after Clark Field. <laughs> you know, then then he's a full you know convert to what air power can do, and it's the Japanese that teach him. Any final thoughts, Jim? Mm, no, that was kind of fun though, because uh, like you said, there was a lot of things I hadn't seen before about it. So it was um, it was kind of neat to find out all those things. Thank you for always sharing your expertise with us. Thank you for listening. If you have questions, suggestions, or comments, we want to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at MacArthur1880, on Facebook as the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial, or you can email MacArthurMemorial at Norfolk.gov.